Welcome back to Generation Invincible, a podcast on public health, healthcare policy, and social justice issues by a millennial for millennials, and anyone else that cares about the health and social problems facing our nation. Today's episode marks number 13 since I started Generation Invincible, an idea that was founded on the premise of wanting a metaphorical soapbox, as you may recall from the first episode, for my opinions regarding public health and social justice in the United States. I have an ongoing list of topics that I want to cover, but often these lists are overshadowed by my need to discuss current events. In particular, and this should come as no surprise, I need to talk about race relations and police brutality in the wake of the murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, among many others that have been murdered before them, ultimately just for being Black. The truth has never been an easy thing to face. It is never a pleasant thing to face because it is, more often than not, painful and unsettling. The current state of the U.S. is just that. And Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, who I spoke about in a previous episode, says it best, quote, silence isn't an option. On any given day, there's always something I'd rather be doing than facing the ugly, racist underbelly of America. I know that I am not alone, but I also know that the families of the slain officers and the families of all those who have been killed by the police would rather not be attending funerals. She goes on to say that the best change is not that which is the reaction to old ways, rather it is thinking creatively and uniquely to come up with new ways. The things that are going on now are the old ways. If you listen to my previous episode and know about Alexander's philosophies, you can likely predict that the point of all of this is that we need a major societal change to improve the wrongs of America, not just reactions when those wrongs rear their ugly heads. We are mourning Philando Castile, who was shot four times during a traffic stop after informing the officer that he was armed, had a concealed carry permit, and was getting his license and registration. We watched the video taken by his fiancée after the shooting, which she live-streamed as Castile took his last breaths with his young daughter in the back seat. We are mourning Alton Sterling, who was shot in the chest while being held down on the ground after being approached by police outside a convenience store where he was selling CDs with the approval of the store's owner. We watched Alton Sterling's 15-year-old son sob on national news and cry out for his daddy. We are still mourning Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Eric Garner, Renisha McBride, and so, so many more. Race tensions in the United States are literally palpable to the point that the Bahamas issued a travel warning to the United States on Friday, cautioning its citizens about police violence. Quote, We wish to advise all Bahamians traveling to the U.S., but especially to the affected cities, to exercise appropriate caution generally. In particular, young males are asked to exercise extreme caution in affected cities in their interactions with police. Do not be confrontational and cooperate. Bahamian citizens were also advised to not participate in political demonstrations and to avoid large crowds. And fearing that the increased violence would also target individuals of Middle Eastern descent related to the anti-Muslim sentiment in the U.S., both the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain issued similar warnings regarding travel to the U.S. At the end of the day, people are going to argue what this is truly about. 
Is it about police brutality and a power complex that some policemen have? Is it about how black lives seem to matter less than others? Is it about gun control because if the victims weren't armed, they wouldn't have been shot? Is it about our undeniable culture of racism and prejudice in the United States? There are so many questions and very few answers. But I want to talk about what I think is the explanation for not all, but at least some of this, and of course, back it up with facts. But as a reminder, this is not me reporting on the news. Rather, social commentary supported by news reports, facts, and statistics that I fully research prior to every episode. Keep that in mind as you listen, and form your opinions and beliefs, whether or not they match mine. Together. We all we got. We when all we police got. taking shots and I ain't talking about Syrah. I'm talking about Emmett Till. I'm talking about Azel Ford. Yeah. Talking about Sean oh. Bell. They never go to jail nah. for it. Trayvon over Skittles. Mike Brown. Cigarello. Story keep repeating itself like the Biggie instrumental. America's a glass house and my revenge is mine. And when, and when you say Black Lives Matter, that's inherently racist. Well, I think there are. Black argument- lives matter, white lives matter, Asian lives matter, Hispanic lives matter. That's anti American and it's racist. No, these words were not from a white supremacist or heard by someone who thinks that they are an activist for their own cause. Well, sort of. These words, proudly stated on national television, came from the mouth of Mr. Rudolph Giuliani, the former mayor of New York. Apparently, according to him, Black Lives Matter ignores the issue of black-on-black crime in favor of only focusing on black deaths at the hands of police. Sherilyn Eiffel, the president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, also appeared on the show and said that Mr. Giuliani was partly to blame for the situation. Quote, He actually presided over one of the most discredited areas and periods of policing in the city of New York, which is, in fact, responsible for a lot of the tension that exists between police officers and people in African-American communities. FBI Director James Comey said in a statement in February 2015 that there indeed was undeniable proof of racial bias among law enforcement officers and a disconnect between police and minority populations. According to William J. Bratton, the New York Police Commissioner, who appeared on ABC's This Week, The videos have shown us that we need to work together to bridge the differences and that we have a shared responsibility. Furthermore, he said that the videos shed light on the fact that we have only just begun what he refers to as a journey. So let's take on the often brought up fact that more whites have been killed by police than blacks. Okay, so that is technically true. According to a real-time database that tracks fatal police shootings run by the Washington Post, as of Sunday, 1,502 people have been shot and killed by on-duty police officers since January 1, 2015. Of them, 732 were white, 381 were black, and 382 were of another or unknown race. But any human with knowledge of cliche phrases will tell you not to judge a book by its cover. In this case, data scientists and policing experts would agree. The most important next step when looking at these numbers is to adjust for population. According to the most recent census data, there are nearly 160 million more white people in America than there are black people. White people make up roughly 62% of the U.S. population, but only about 49% of those who are killed by police officers. 
African Americans, however, account for 24% of those fatally shot and killed by the police, despite just being 13% of the U.S. population. As the Post noted in a new analysis published last week, that means that Black Americans are 2.5 times more likely as white Americans to be shot and killed by police officers. U.S. police officers have shot and killed the exact same number of unarmed white people as they have unarmed black people, 50 each. But because the white population is approximately five times as great as the black population, that means unarmed black Americans were five times as likely as unarmed white Americans to be shot and killed by a police officer. Furthermore, about 13% of all black people who have been fatally shot by police since January 2015 were unarmed, compared with 7% of all white people. And now we're brought right back to the argument that black Americans commit more crimes, that there is just too much violence in the black community, according to our good friend Rudy Giuliani. In reality, yes, more murders and other violent crimes are committed by African Americans. The most recent FBI crime data from 2009 shows that of all the violent crimes where someone was ultimately charged in the country's 75 largest counties, African Americans made up 62% of robberies, 57% of murders, and 45% of assaults. So what we see is that we are caught in this vicious cycle, a system of structural racism that has existed and morphed over history to still be here today. African Americans are confined to racially segregated and generally impoverished neighborhoods, which denies them the opportunity to live decently and thrive and get real jobs, which forces them into the informal employment sector of both legal and illegal jobs, which increases their likelihood to resort to joining gangs or being involved in drugs just in order to survive. And then they are targeted due to broken window policing policies. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots, we on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day. There is a whole sector of work known as informal work, which does not guarantee a minimum wage, gives the individuals no unemployment, social security, or other benefits, and due to the general illegality of their work, makes them prime targets for aggressive policing. Informal work is defined as economic activities that are outside tax and regulatory policies, and it is usually stereotyped by consisting of the black market, undocumented immigrants, and white-collar tax evasion. But this is not always the case. For example, an analysis of how poor mothers live interviewed over 300 low-income mothers who all had some type of informal work. Very few of these consisted of illegal activities like drug dealing or prostitution, while most were little jobs on the side like babysitting, house cleaning, yard work, or collecting cans. There are a lot of benefits to informal employment over formal, including tax avoidance, detection avoidance, flexibility in hours of work and seasonal options, independence, and ease of entry and lack of requirement of background checks, references, and education. I can say with complete confidence that many, if not all, of my listeners began in the informal sector with things like babysitting or yard work. Even a lemonade stand is considered within the informal sector. A 2011 study estimated that $2 trillion in underground income goes unreported as part of informal employment. 
In fact, some estimates show that informal employment makes up anywhere between 3 and 40 percent of the labor force in the United States. After the civil rights movement and race riots that characterized the 1960s, prisons replaced social aid and the criminal justice system became the state's main tool to discipline the black poor, locked into segregated neighborhoods, and locked out of good jobs. And thus began the policy of broken windows policing, which was actually first described in an article published in 1982. Basically, the idea is that small instances of disorder, like broken windows, are the important beginnings of serious crimes later on. While the idea is not that they are necessarily linked, it is more so that the disorder leads to fear and withdrawal from the residents, consequently leaving a window for serious crime to come in because of less informal social control. The concept continues by concluding that police should focus on the instances of disorder and encourage communities to practice informal social control that then prevents serious crime from coming in. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not that this is true and an effective tactic for decreasing crime. But what we do know is that it makes the strategies that poor people have for survival become crimes that are targeted by police. Systematic unemployment for African Americans has been a constant since the Great Migration when they were brought to an area, the North, that was not only becoming deindustrialized, but also undergoing massive segregation in the form of suburbanization. And now, the jobs are disappearing even more as automation, global outsourcing, and concentration of wealth are on the rise. This could be remedied in part by increased government-created jobs and education programs, which has a very high need, but very little political support. And on top of this, studies show that racial segregation is still alive and well in the United States. But didn't we end racial segregation a really, really long time ago? Well, first off, it wasn't so long ago. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was what ended all state and local laws requiring segregation. U.S. Government Accountability Office investigators found that from the 2000-2001 to the 2013-2014 school year, both the percentage of public schools in high poverty and the percentage comprised of mostly African American or Hispanic students grew significantly, more than doubling, from 7,009 schools to 15,089 schools. The percentage of all schools with so-called racial or socioeconomic isolation grew from 9% to 16%. And by the way, isolated schools is defined as those in which 75% or more of the students are of the same race or class. Additionally, these schools were found to have disproportionately fewer math, science, and college prep courses, and much higher rates of students who were held back in ninth grade, suspended, or expelled. Newly released census data shows that white-black segregation in large cities still remains high, according to the Brookings Institution. On a scale of 0 to 100, where 0 is perfect integration and 100 is complete segregation, the data showed that most of the country's largest cities and their surrounding areas have segregation levels of between 50 and 70. So while legal segregation has ended, the system and society that supports and fosters segregation has not. And this is just one of those many truths that are so uncomfortable to talk about and to face. When you are looking at the reality, staring it right in the face, it is so difficult to argue against it. For example, Chicago's ghettos in the 1960s were notorious for their shootings, robberies, rapes, fires, 
joblessness, horrible schools and high dropout rates, rampant alcoholism and heroin addiction, and more. Racial segregation is assumed to no longer be a problem. But still today, most African Americans in Chicago are clustered in two areas, as they were in the 1960s, with 55% of Chicago's 964,000 African Americans living in 21 community areas, in which the population is 96% Black. And the problems from the 60s? Some argue they are worse than they were before, in part due to the war on drugs, which I discussed in further detail in The Jim Crow Health Woe. Segregation is nice for the haves, not only because they don't have to live near or deal with the have-nots, they don't even have to see them. In this case, obviously, the haves are those with white privilege. In the late 1960s in Chicago, efforts to improve the circumstances of urban Blacks began to change from desegregation to community development, aka programs aimed at making ghettos more habitable. But of course, they were not and are not. Harvard sociologist Robert Sampson found that Chicago neighborhoods that were poor and Black in 1970 were generally poor and Black in 2000. To my point, Chicago is just a case study of a national trend. And for those of you that may argue that societal segregation is a private choice made by its citizens and that it happens naturally and freely, according to the Center for American Progress, the majority of African Americans in opinion polls would prefer to live in an integrated neighborhood. So as segregation became the norm, so did the concentration of poverty in these same communities. And this is the kind of poverty that is nearly impossible to escape, since there aren't many opportunities within the communities and no light at the end of the tunnel. At the end of the day, there are apparent problems that need to be recognized, researched, and fixed. Like I've said throughout this episode, we have to face the truth, no matter how painful it is, in order to create positive change and better the world. And facing the truth is not pointing fingers. To me, no one person is to blame for the horrors that happen every day. Rather, it's a system of beliefs, fears, stereotypes, and precedents that create what we see on the news every day. To submit feedback about Generation Invincible, ask questions, make suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want someone to listen to what you have to say, email generationinvincible at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out Generation Invincible's new Tumblr page. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Until next time, to quote Chuck D, the United States is like one big jail for Black people because we're locked into a mentality and a mindset that limits our potential. It has us against us.